and I'm going to pray. Our loving Father, we ask now that as we do come to your word, that you would speak to us. We love to hear your voice, and we pray that you would teach us so that we might know you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I worked with a minister who was a a really blokey bloke. Uh, He he literally loved shooting wild animals, and you're just the kind of blokey bloke that everyone would click with. Um, Sometimes he'd make jokes about how he didn't really have much of any real emotions as a pastor. Uh, And uh, in fact, when he was farewelled from a church, they gave him a special gift, and he once showed it to me. He said, uh, some people say that I don't have a pastor's heart, but there it is up on the shelf. And in it was a jar with a sheep's heart that had been handed to him at his farewell. (laughs) So he said to me, if anyone says I don't have a pastor's heart, that's okay, it's up there on the shelf. Now, this is, he actually was a great minister, he had a great heart, and, and was, was a, a great pastor. <laughs> but it just sort of uh, kind of goes with that idea that, that sometimes you, you can be called someone who doesn't have a pastor's heart because you don't have the gushiness. What was the, what was the Apostle Paul like? Well, I think we've seen in the book of Acts that Paul was a tough guy with a pastor's heart. And we're going to see that today as we see his priorities, but also as we witness his farewells. Because this guy is going to, he's going to be a bit emotional a few times, and for good reason. Paul knows that he's got to take with him the finances that have been raised for the support of the Christians in Judea. and He's got to take them down to Jerusalem. This is basically what we see happening today. And he knows that the trip is risky, but he also knows that it's necessary He's got to travel to Jerusalem, even though it will lead to his arrest. Now, I wonder if that reminds you of anybody else, somebody who knew it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and be arrested and to suffer. It's just like Jesus, isn't it? In fact, the guy who wrote, the, uh, wrote Acts is the same person who wrote Luke's Gospel. And in both Luke's Gospel and in Acts, we see this journey to Jerusalem. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary, says this, and I'll read it out to you. He said, Like Jesus, Paul travelled to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples. Like Jesus, he was opposed by hostile Jews who plotted against him. Like Jesus, he made or received three successive predictions of his sufferings. Like Jesus, he declared his readiness to lay down his life. Like Jesus, he was determined to complete his ministry and not be deflected from it. Like Jesus, he expressed his abandonment to the will of God. Luke surely intended his readers to envisage Paul as following in his master's footsteps when he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Today we're going to see that Paul followed Jesus on a painful trip to Jerusalem. And as we see this, we're going to see more about the personal cost that would come with his determination to do that and the emotional toll on his pastor's heart. Well, we begin as the riot ends. We saw a riot in Ephesus last week, verse 1 of chapter 20. When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. And then he said goodbye and he left for Macedonia. And while there, he encouraged the believers in all the towns he passed through. And then he travelled down to Greece where he stayed for three months He was preparing to sail back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life, so he decided to return through Macedonia. 
Uh, what we're going to see in a moment is Paul is heading down to Jerusalem, making a whole lot of stops along the way to encourage the believers. But it's not all happy days because along the way, Paul learns of a Jewish plot to kill him. No surprises there. This has happened many times for him, sadly. But what did he do with that information, that intelligence? He decides to change his plan so he'd avoid their plots. And so then, in the next few verses, we read about a whole list of people who travelled with Paul on his journey, presumably to represent all of the different churches that put their money in the plate to support those Judeans. And we read that they went to Philippi and then to Troas. And there we get to witness how the early church gathered. Now, there's a fair bit of talk in the Bible about what you should do as Christians. There's not a whole lot of talk about what church should actually be like. It's funny, isn't it? Maybe that's why so many churches look so different in the way that they come together. They're not kind of following an exact list of instructions because those instructions aren't necessarily there. But we right here in this part of Acts chapter 20 get to have a picture of what it is when they came together. And interestingly we get to see that exactly when it is that they met as Christians. It's worth remembering that for, for thousands of years, God's people met on the Sabbath. That was the key date. It was from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. Now, when we think about a day, we think of it starting at midnight and going through to the next midnight. But no, uh, their Sabbath started when the sun went down. And the next, that whole day finished when the sun next went down. So that was their Sabbath. Nowadays, most Christians meet on the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, that's what we're doing here. Now, the other mob on Saturday night, well, they, they meet the night before. But in winter, they're still meeting on the, sab- on the first day of the week. Why? Because meeting after dark. Now, it doesn't really matter. Oh, you'll be pleased to know. But the reason I tell you all of this is because it makes a whole lot of sense of what the Christians were doing as they were gathering here in verse 7 and gives us an idea of exactly when it was during the day that they got together because it's quite significant in this story. Because we read in verse 7 that on the first day of the week we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them and since he was leaving the next day he kept talking until midnight. It was a long, long sermon. Uh, you can see it didn't start in the morning on the, f- the first day. It probably started after dinner. Uh, it, the Bible literally says they broke bread, which uh, may well be the Lord's Supper, perhaps. Uh, but at the heart of what they're doing as they're coming together is that they're listening to the word of God. It's at the very center. The heart of the gathering was the preaching was particularly long, this sermon, because Paul was leaving the next day for good and they wanted to squeeze every little bit of wisdom out of him before he left. It's like, tell us everything you must tell us. We want to know it all. But suddenly, tragedy struck. Verse 8. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. As Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell sound asleep. And he dropped three stories to his death below. I don't think anyone saw that coming. It's a tragedy. But from this tragedy came a miracle. Verse 10, Paul went down, bent over him, took him into his arms. Don't worry, he said he's alive. (laughs) It's extraordinary. 
Just like when Elijah leant over the boy who had died, and like Elisha did the same thing, Paul does the same thing. And Paul brings the young man back from the dead. You might say, oh, look, he just must have had a bit of a knock to the head and he came round. Uh, listen, God, the guy who's writing the book of Acts is a doctor. He's a medical guy. When he says that someone is dead, you know that he's, that person really is dead. He pronounces him dead. And likewise, he can pronounce him as being alive. They were amazing times indeed. And so what did they do? Did they scatter, go home, say, whew, that was pretty big, lucky it was him, not me? No, they all went upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper and ate together. And Paul continued talking to them until the morning, the dawn, and then he left. And meanwhile, the young man was taken home alive and well, and everyone was greatly relieved. I'm sure they were. That was a night and a day to remember. The boy was fine and God kept blessing the ministry of Paul. We too recognise that the apostolic teaching needs to be at the heart of what we do. Now, we don't have Paul the Apostle standing here talking to us today, but we have the writings of the apostles in the Bible and the prophets. We have God's word amongst us, and that's why we spend time listening. Because as we hear God's word, we know God more. We want to know God we want to experience him in his word and that by his spirit he might grow us so that we become God-centered, God-minded, God-hearted. Paul preached the word and we hear the word. Anyway, Paul then traveled by sea to Miletus, just south of Ephesus. And verse 16, we read that he decided to sail on past Ephesus. Hang on, Ephesus is the place he spent three years with all his friends there. He did that because he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. But when we landed at Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus, asking them to come and meet him. Paul knows that if he goes up there and pops into Ephesus, it'll be impossible for him to leave. Everyone will want him to stay and keep talking. He had such a special impact on them over those three years that we heard about last week. But he did want to give a final message to the church leaders. And so he sends a message, why don't you come down and see me before I go? And he does that. And now we get to see the real pastor's heart of the Apostles Paul. He speaks to the men who led those churches, the place of Ephesus, the place where he planted those churches, and the place where he spent three years with them. And we are going to get that insight, a deeply personal insight, into the life of the Apostle Paul. Because when they arrive, we read verse 18, Paul declared, You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. Paul begins by making it very clear that he was doing the Lord's work. He wasn't doing Paul's work. He was preaching Christ, not Paul, building the church of Christ, not the church of Paul, doing Jesus' work. And he did it humbly. It would have been so easy for him to say, I am the Christian superstar. I mean, look at the stuff I've done. You've heard about what happens with the, with the hankies. You saw what I did with the boy who fell asleep during my sermon. I'm pretty good at this stuff. And look at, 
he could have listed them all, but he spoke humbly. And in one time, in one of the letters, he does need to list his credentials, and you can see that he's doing it through pain. He doesn't want to be bragging, but he needed to. He spoke with humility, but he also spoke with tears. Here's tough, ball, tough boy Paul crying was part of his ministry. And I can understand that. Because the pain of ministry can break a pastor's heart. I myself have felt my heart break as I've seen people who I've pastored drift away from Jesus, make some really bad decisions and fall away from God. And it breaks my heart. I meet from time to time with other people in my situation, other ministers, and we share stories, their war stories, their stories of joy and their stories of sadness. This is not a job where you can be distant. You, you need to be engaged. And in fact, calling it a job is weird anyway because it's about sharing heart and wearing the pastor's heart on a sleeve means that it's very open for damage. And we see this with Paul here. And Paul says that despite those hard challenges, verse 20, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. He told them the words from God. He was, in a sense, an ambassador of Christ. He will use this expression in one of his pastoral letters. Ambassadors don't make up the story. They are told by the ruler, officially represent me by sending this message to this foreign power. And they can't, as an ambassador, get over there and say, oh, it was a bit scary. I didn't tell him that he had to surrender or that he had to change. I didn't tell him that stuff. I actually made up something different. It's like, you can't do that. You're an ambassador. That is what Paul did. He told the people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. A great pressure I feel as a pastor is to just say things that make you feel nice. But I know that what you need to hear and what I need to hear from those who pastor me are words of truth. And sometimes they'll be hard words. When you go to the doctor and they tell you that there's something wrong with you, you're pleased, even though it's bad news. Because you know what to do with it. Whereas they come in and say, well, I just hate telling people that they've got high blood pressure I, I'll, or cancer. I'll, I'll just say, look, you're looking well today. Yeah, how are things going? Great. Okay, off you go. Give me your Medicare card. Paul needed to give them the hard words because he loved them, because he was ambassador. Verse 21, he says, I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. Very simply, he made it totally clear that when you turn to Jesus, you must repent from sin. This is not a bolt-on. This is not kind of like an upgrade to life. You know, I've decided to have a little bit of spirituality in my mix. No. This is a dramatic change. It's saying no to the past, saying goodbye to the past, and saying hello to Jesus. This message brings pain. This message brings controversy. You will come to church and you will hear things from the Bible that you'll say, I don't like to hear that. I don't want to hear that. It's a hard message for me. It's a hard message for my family and my friends. I don't want to hear this. 
But you need to hear it because it's a word from God. Personally, we all need to repent from sin and it will bring pain and controversy. Paul in particular knows that following Jesus will bring him pain and controversy because he now opens up a bit about his journey that's happening as we speak as he heads down to Jerusalem. He says, And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. I don't know if that's the kind of message that Paul would have liked to have heard from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Just tell me nice things, Holy Spirit. Don't tell me that, that I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to get arrested and I will suffer. But the Holy Spirit did and he needed to and Paul listened. Even though he knows his journey is going to bring pain, it doesn't stop him going. Again, it's just like Jesus. His disciples are basically saying, please don't go down there and die. And he's like, I've got to do it. What did Jesus say to Paul, uh, to, to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. So great was the temptation for him to turn away from Jerusalem. There's parallels here with Paul as well. But he'll do this, he'll make this painful journey for a reason. Verse 24, But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. What drives him? What makes him go and be on this kind of kamikaze mission down to Jerusalem? It's the grace of God. The grace of God drives Paul's mission. That is the very thing. Grace is what not, it's when you're not getting what you deserve. It's when you are getting what you don't deserve. Grace is the word that he uses to sum up the very heart of the Christian gospel. Paul got this job by the Lord himself as he converted him, as he called him, as he commissioned him on the road to Damascus. We haven't quite had that same calling, commissioning and blinded by the light experience as Paul did. But if you know Jesus, you will know in your heart that turning to him is the best thing anyone can do. And you don't want to keep that to yourself. It should be just a natural thing that you tell people, you know what I know, the best thing in the world? It's knowing Jesus. I can't keep it to myself. I can't hold back. That's what Paul did too. But sharing comes with a cost. Here's how Paul describes his cost, verse 25. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. Uh, This is a a full-on farewell. This is I'm never coming back. The Holy Spirit's made it clear to him, you are never going to see these people ever, ever again. And I think that's partly why it is just so utterly painful. If you've ever had to farewell someone for the very last time and you both know it's the last time, there is a gravity to the situation that you've got to deal with that goodbye. It's not like, well, I'll say goodbye, but you know, we might bump into each other again. Uh, They were never going to bump into each other again. This was it for good. And that's what made it so hard. And in the light of this dramatic goodbye, he wants to make it clear to them that he's done his job well. He says, I declare, verse 26, that today I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. 
For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. He says, I have told you the lot. Everything you need to know. It's what some versions will say. The whole counsel of God. Every little bit. Including the uncomfortable truths. The tricky bits. The hard passages of the Bible, so to speak. I, I tend to like us starting at the start of a book of the Bible and preaching right through it to the end. Uh, time to time we'll have a little one-off here or one-off theme or something like that, but pretty much I like to start at the start and get to the end because as you're flicking your pages of the Bible, you'll realise that if I skip a bit that's pretty hard and difficult or maybe doesn't quite match up with what I'm teaching, then there's something wrong. I've really got to stop and chew over every little bit along the way. Because sometimes I'll get bits that I think, oh, that's a really hard message to preach. I remember, was it last year or the year before? Or was it this year? When we got to the book of Judges. It was this year, wasn't it? Earlier this year. And there's horrible passages of massacre and cutting people up into small pieces and sending them in the mail. It was just horrible. And I'm trying to go through the book of Judges thinking, oh, is there any way I can skip that bit? And it's like, no, I've got to do that bit. And it was hard, but it was important for us, and the Lord taught us through it. And I think Paul, day by day, would have to get up and say things where he's like, oh, I wish I didn't have to say that. But he knew he needed to. And so he shared every bit with them. That's part of the job of being a pastor and why hearts of pastors can get hurt. (laughs) But with this in mind, he now says something to the elders, the other pastors that he's pastoring at that point. He says, verse 28, So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. He basically says, straight off the bat, you've got to guard yourselves and others. You've got to look after yourself, because if you don't look after yourself, you can't look after others as well. James is sitting here, I'm just thinking of those safety announcements where you need to fit the mask yourself before you go and care for others in the the aeroplane. You know, it's a kind of a little bit like this, pastors. It's like, pastors, if you don't get yourself right with God, then you're not in a position where you can really go around and help others. You've really got to get stuff right with God. It's not going to be perfect. Every pastor is a sinner. But Paul makes it very clear. Number one thing, pastors, guard yourself. Make sure that oxygen mask is securely fitted to yourself before you assist others. If you're leading a small group, if you're helping with scripture, if you're involved in the kids or youth, whatever it is, and there are other roles as well in our church, you need to guard yourself so that by guarding yourself, you can then guard others as well. That's part of being the shepherd of God's flock. Shepherds protect the flock, feed the flock, guard the flock. And so we need to do that within our church as we care for each other as well. And this is because the sheep are valuable. Uh, In Australia, we have thousands and thousands of sheep, all just randomly in huge, big um, properties, especially out in the outback. We we learned earlier last uh, earlier this year when Cameron Jones came out from Ireland about the the intimate relationship 
between a traditional shepherd and all of his sheep. He actually gave them names. His, his great uncle, uh, his wife's uncle, gave these individual sheep that he pastored names. And they knew his voice. And they would come to him. That's the kind of thing here. The sheep, you know, thousands, a dime a dozen, but the sheep in God's church are bought with the blood of Jesus. Deeply valuable. The greatest cost, indeed, was the expense of Christ's sacrifice. That is the greatest cost that's ever been made in history. And they are the sheep. So when I'm shepherding the sheep at Jamboree, I am working with the most valuable possessions in the universe, bought with the blood of Jesus. And that's why I've got to look after you guys. And we've got to look after each other as well. Because we're under threat. Verse 29, Paul says, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. These false teachers will attack Christians and kill Christians, usually not literally with blood and guts, but certainly spiritually. False teachers will spiritually attack Christians. And often it will be people from within who will do this. There will be little distortions, little tweaks along the way, just slightly one or two degrees off bearing. doesn't seem like it's going off track, but they're actually taking a very different direction. I think one of the forms, this, I mean, there were many examples today I could use, but I, I think the so-called prosperity gospel is one of these examples. The prosperity gospel is preached by many preachers around the world who basically say that when you follow Jesus, you'll get prosperity now, in this life. Become a Christian and you'll be spared of all your current financial worries. All your health worries will go. All your Mental health worries will go. And whatever else that you're worried about or concerning about or troubling you, they will go. They'll be fixed right here, right now. Now, in a sense, you can see where you get, where you get to that teaching because God says that we have every spiritual blessing and he blesses us. But it's not now. It's in the life to come. Now, the sad thing about the prosperity gospel is that people throughout the world, and often in place, like I was speaking to, to African pastors last year, and the prosperity gospel is a shocker, particularly in Africa, because people who are poor come along to churches and they see pastors who are rich, and the pastor says, come to my church and you'll be like me. And when they're not, what does it do? It destroys their faith. It shipwrecks them, and they go out of the pen, leave the church, and are not saved because of that false prophet, because of that false shepherd. There are other stories like that as well, of course. And so we need to be on guard. Verse 31, this is what he says to the, to the pastors. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears for you. Uh, this wasn't just some sort of training program that he was going through the motions with. He was pouring out his heart. His heart was on his sleeve. And it was through tears that he, he taught them the gospel and everything about Christ. And so now he says, verse 32, I entrust 
you to God. As they watch and care through tears, he is going to entrust them to God through tears. Have a look at verse 32. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. Basically he says, I am going, you'll never see me again, and I am going to hand over everything I have taught you. And so work with it and be wise. I'm entrusting it to you. And they've got to defend it. And he ends by just saying a few little words about his own situation. Verse 33 says, I've never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who were with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those who are in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. He basically says, uh, well, we, we know that for much of Paul's ministry, he kept working himself to support himself and even others. What's clear is that he ministered without material gain. It would have been much easier for him to do any other job, really, and keep all the money, and, and, and he did it without gain, without material gain. And so he ended his speech, verse 36. When he'd finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he'd said that they would never see him again. And then they escorted him down to the ship. It's, it's very emotional, isn't it? And it's emotional because they loved their leader. He is the one who brought them to Christ. I, I think very fondly of those who pastored me and brought me to Christ. I think of my school chaplain. I, I think of my youth minister. I think of other ministers and other leaders who have family members. It's it's a special relationship when someone brings you to Christ and pastors you and feeds you day in, day out. And they were sad because they had to say goodbye. But Paul's got to go, and so he does. Verse 4, we read that he went, uh, he went ashore, found the local believers, and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. So he's gone around a couple of ports and he's dropped in different places and now he's gone here and they've said, the Holy Spirit's told us don't go to Jerusalem. You think, hang on a second, why is that? Because we read that the Spirit said that Paul would suffer in Jerusalem and they've heard that it's going to be hard for him, like he's heard it's going to be hard for him and what do they say to him? Don't go, don't go. But instead he did. He farewelled them. He went down into Caesarea and then stayed with Philip, who was one of the seven men who many years earlier was chosen to help out with the distribution of food with Stephen. And then he meets there a prophet called Agabus. Skip to verse 11. He has a message. We read that he came over, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands with it. And he said, the Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. It's another warning from the Holy Spirit. Everybody's hearing it. Paul's heard it. All these others have heard it. Paul, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get, a, you're going to get arrested and you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. It's going to be bad. Paul knew it, but he went. They all knew it. They wanted him not to go. 
but nonetheless he went. Paul must still make the painful journey to Jerusalem. You see, when they all heard this, verse 12, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Don't go. We know what's going to happen. But still, Paul had to make that painful journey to Jerusalem. And so he did. He made that painful journey to Jerusalem. Just like when Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem and be handed over, be arrested by the Jews, handed over to the Gentiles. And they said, please don't, Jesus. And he said, I must. And aren't we thankful he did? In fact, Paul responded this way. Verse 13, he said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade Paul, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And so it was. Paul was going to Jerusalem. Why? For the sake of Jesus. That's why he went. That's why he had to go. Even if it would break his heart, even if it would break his body, even if it would cost his life. And it was all happening with the great weeping that broke Paul's heart, his pastor's heart. See, that is the cost of pastoring the church, leading the church, serving the church. And that's why today's passage ends with Paul arriving in Jerusalem. He didn't want to go. Everyone else didn't want him to go. But he had to, and so he did. And we go to see next week just how hard it actually gets. See, serving Christ is supposed to be hard. When people say that when you become a Christian, life's suddenly going to get easy, that all your relationships are going to be fixed, that all your finances are going to get fixed, that everything, everybody's going to love you for what you say and who you are in every single way, and then, then say, to be honest, I don't know what version of Christianity you're talking about. Because when I think of my leader, Jesus, what happened to him? When I think of the Apostle Paul, what happened to him? Why should I expect that following either of them or both of them will actually lead to different results? It's going to be hard. But it's worthwhile. You bet it is. And as pastor of you, it's hard for me too. And as I am pastor and as we pastor each other to an extent, it can be hard for us as well. And we see it through the tears of Paul's tender words to his fellow elders. And we see it in the tears and the turmoil of those who pastor in his footsteps. And I think that's why the letter to the Hebrews in the final chapter says this word to us. It says, Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Friends, we need to pray for pastors. We really need to pray for pastors. I pray for pastors. Please pray for pastors. So that as we all follow them too, we might follow them as we follow Christ, who gave his life for us. Let me pray. Loving Father, we do indeed pray for all our pastors. We pray for all who minister within our church here. And for those who minister throughout the world, Lord, would you please help them to guard themselves and guard others. 
Help us all to submit to them with joy and not make their life difficult. Help us to submit to you as we submit to Christ. And that we might hear your word, which is sometimes really hard, and to accept it as a gift from you. Please strengthen us to serve you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.